This is your community spirit, a show about caring, sharing, and preparing for the changes needed in the world as we know it. Let's bring back the circle again. The circle of family, circle of friends, and the circle of being. Wake up and be healthy and therefore wealthy to the peace and joy of Mother Earth. This is your community radio, your solar-powered community radio, 91.1 FM. And this is Tree Song, and I believe we have a special guest on the line. Can you hear us, Or? Good day. I'm calling in from Atlanta at the Rotary International Water and Sanitation Conference. Or the right. pre- um, trying to figure out ways to make the world better with clean water, and I guess that's the part I'm focused on, yeah. <laughs> not the sanitation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess it's one of those things that those of us who have it often tend to take for granted, but if you don't have that's it, it's a major problem in your life so. yeah well I guess we would take for granted this next story <laughs> yeah US coastal cities will flood more often and more severely study warns now I guess that's not a big issue for us except I forget exactly I want to say 80% of people live within 50 miles of the coast which means if all this does flood, they're going to come visit us. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we have, here's the story here. Cities lining the U.S. coasts should brace for a lot more flooding, from nuisance floods that shut down streets during high tides to deluges that take lives and wipe out infrastructure. In a new study published Wednesday, researchers from Princeton and Rutgers universities warned that the current flooding predictions, including those widely used by policymakers, don't accurately reflect the frequency and type of floods that are likely to challenge American cities in the coming decades as global temperatures and sea level rise. Now, it's a pretty important distinction to have, like what exact types of floods. Like, there's a difference between it floods a little bit often versus every once in a while the whole town gets wiped out. (laughs) The research found that major coastal flooding expected to occur only once every 100 years, will inundate coastal cities an average of 40 times more often by 2050, likely overwhelming the city's abilities to protect themselves. After 2050, the picture looks worse. Major flooding could slosh through the streets of New York City every other month by the end of the century, while major floods could sweep into Seattle nearly every week. Quote, U.S. cities and infrastructure on the coasts east, gulf, or west. Better wake up because there are some very large frequencies coming, said Michael Oppenheimer, a Princeton professor who has researched sea level rise for 20 years 
and is a co-author of the new study, published in Environmental Research Letters. Quote, That's assuming we don't curtail greenhouse gas emissions. Oppenheimer and his colleagues decided to take another look at widely used assumptions released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2013 that forecast flooding frequency based on sea level rise of 1 to 3 feet by the end of the century. They determined that the IPCC report's authors had approximated the frequency of flooding using the same multiplier for different flood types, which had the effect of overestimating certain flood risks in some areas and underestimating them in others. So yeah, they're getting more specific with this study. Uh, they, they used more recent approximations of sea level rise and combined them with current flood return frequencies at every tide gauge in the United States. Then they calculated... So they're basing it on more current data or we're having more high frequencies. Yeah, and that sounds like a lot of work, too. You know, they went to all of these different tide gauges and they did these calculations. Um, that's why they're the scientists. <laughs> we can have the idea of, oh, let's go and check if the sea level is rising. But it's actually a lot of hard work to calculate that. So the idea was to present a more complete prediction tailored to each place so that cities or areas can better prepare for floods. Some cities on the west coast could see more extreme floods more frequently, while on the east coast less extreme flooding will be likely to happen more often. And those sorts of differences are making a big difference in how you prepare for the flooding. Of course, like they mentioned earlier in the article, one way to prepare for the flooding is to try to reduce emissions so it doesn't get that bad that quickly. But uh, that's a whole nother story. Well, we're starting to get floods ourselves. That's the third time that I can remember downtown Carbondale being closed to flooding. And this last one was more extreme than ever. Yeah. Yeah, and it's due to flash floods and things like that. We can experience flooding, too, here in the, you know, even this far inland. Uh, right. We do experience flooding, too. At a certain point, though, with some of these coastal cities, if they're experiencing the flooding more often than not, then at a certain point you have to just declare certain parts of the coast underwater that used to not be underwater. Or, you know, build massive seawalls that in places like Miami may not even work. I mean, New York and uh, Florida are already having issues because they're you know, very low-lying locations. Yeah. And so they're getting tidal flooding on a regular basis already. Yeah, and in areas like Miami, you'll hear the phrase porous limestone a lot because in New York, there's at least the chance that they can build a seawall and keep out the sea, but in Miami area, um, if they build a seawall, it will probably just percolate under and come up through the sewers, which already happens at times in some places. So different, each area has its own, is tasked with its own efforts to adapt and to mitigate. I keep thinking 2050 is way out there, you know? We're talking about this happening in 2050. Yeah. It seems like that at first. You know, I'm someone who remembers the, you know, the 20th century. <laughs> I was alive during the 20th century, so numbers like 2050 seem distant, but then... Having a daughter helps me to realize how close it is because, you know, how old is she going to be in 2050? You know, it's just to be... Yeah. She'll, she'll be younger than I am currently, you know. Yeah. 
that's just over 30 years from now. I mean, I'll see that in my lifetime. Yeah, I'll see that in my lifetime too. So it's a reality that we need to prepare for. Exciting times. Yeah. Now, speaking of exciting times, I've gotten interviewed three times this week by um, news reporters asking me how um, the U.S. withdrawing from the Paris Agreement will affect my solar business. And, you know, I mean, since the federal government really doesn't do anything for solar, it wouldn't really affect it. But I thought I'd read this. We always have Paris. As far as these states are concerned, the Paris Climate Agreement is still on. A group of 13 states and territories have banded together to fill the ginormous U.S.-shaped hole in the Paris Agreement. After Trump announced last Thursday that he would extradite the U.S. from the accord, the governors in Washington, California, and New York quickly announced that they would forge on without him. The United States Climate Alliance now includes Oregon, Minnesota, Vermont, Puerto Rico, and more. If you would like um, to be able to actually see the map of all of them, um, please email info at yourcommunityspirit.org. The, the group accounts for roughly 35% of the U.S. economy, um, not landmass, but actual economy. Now, while the legal implications of the alliance are, you know, still murky, the states are not constitutionally allowed to join interstate compacts in some cases. The political ramifications are, of course, obvious. The Climate Alliance announced states are framing the effort as a way to resist the roadblocks Trump has thrown in front of environmentum by pledging to stay on track for Paris agreement goals and clean power plan commitments with or without presidential support. Quote, the president has already said climate change is a hoax, which is the exact opposite of virtually all scientific and worldwide opinion, said California Governor Jerry Brown in an announcement on the new alliance. I don't believe fighting reality is a good strategy, not for America, not for anybody. <laughs> now, here in Illinois, well, that sounds weird to say since I'm sitting in Atlanta. <laughs> in in Illinois, um, the state in December signed a renewable portfolio standard to put 25% renewables by 2025 and are backing it with $200 million. And so Illinois has... Um, has and will probably jump to the top 10 states of renewable energy because of that. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that this reveals is that it can be an alternative strategy. You know, one strategy was to try to get action on the federal level to take action on climate change. But then if all of the states agree to similar goals to what we were trying to get the federal level to agree to, then the effect is the same. It's harder because you've got to go piecemeal state to state and try to convince every single state government to do something that's not awful. <laughs> Which, you know, it's hard enough to get that done in one state, as we in Illinois can attest to. But they've got all these states already that are 
you know, 35% of the U.S. economy is already committing to try to take action similar to the Paris Climate Agreement. So maybe it's possible. All right, let's see what we have in other news here. Plight of the bumblebee. Yeah, not flight of the bumblebee, plight of the bumblebee. Scientists figured out a simple way to discover what's troubling bees. We've seen big declines in wild bee populations. That's not just bad for the fuzzy little bees. It could drive up prices for almonds, blueberries, and other pollinator-dependent treats. We don't often think about it, but so much of what we eat is dependent on pollinators. The challenge is knowing what would help them. Do we focus on preserving habitat and flowers, or should we focus on certain pesticides? Is climate change behind this too? It's hard to say because bees are hard to study. It's relatively easy to count long-legged pronghorns, or wide-winged condors, compared to the counting, counting the gnat-sized Perdita minima, the world's tiniest bee. That's why a research team at the University of Missouri has been putting little microphones in alpine meadows. When those mics record buzzing, the team's software analyzes the noise to tell scientists the number and species of bees visiting. They just published a paper showing that their methods work. This breakthrough could allow regular folks to collect solid scientific data from the safety of their porch. Farmers could, quote, monitor pollinator pollination of their orchards and vegetable crops and head off pollination deficits, said Candace Galen, a biological science professor who led the university's research team in a news release. Interested? The group is working on an app that would let you collect bee data with your smartphone. So there's an app for that, or there may soon be. There may soon be an app. <laughs> and that's pretty exciting because it's... We, we have talked before, uh, from time to time, about the plight of the bumblebee. And it is difficult. We have all these specific ideas for what to do, but it's hard to know which one will have more effect and how the bees are doing at any given point. But that makes and sense. Just listening. Probably regional, right? Yeah. I mean, different areas have different things that affect them differently. Yeah. Sort of makes me think of different types of observation and different types of learning. Like we defaulted to trying to count the bees, probably you know by by seeing them. But the sound-based method sounds like it actually has promising results. So much so that they might turn it into an app and do mass data collection. Speaking of apps, here in Atlanta, they have world-famous traffic jams, and they have an app called Way, where people can update when traffic stops and people can reroute themselves to try to make it places. My, my friends here, um, to alleviate the... They had bought a Leaf, which is an all-electric car. They actually bought it used for under $10,000. I'm so jealous because it's the one, the one I was looking at, but knew they're over 40, but... Um, so basically if the traffic is stopped the electric leaf isn't using anything because the you know the engine stops working so yeah it's like <laughs> so I guess that helps a little bit when you're stuck in traffic um, cleaner than ever latest numbers show electric vehicle advantage is growing 
everywhere in the U.S., driving electric is cleaner than driving a typical gasoline-powered car. That's truer now than ever before. And the advantage electric vehicles have over comparable gasoline cars is only continuing to increase. New analysis by the Union of Concerned Scientists shows that in 70% of the country, driving electric produces fewer emissions than driving a traditional gasoline car that gets 50 miles to the gallon. On average, today's electric vehicles are as clean as gasoline cars that get 75 miles to the gallon. That's thanks, in large part, to significant improvements in power generation, with more regions cutting their use of coal and increasing investment in renewable energy sources like wind and solar. Quote, Driving electric is one of the best choices a consumer can make to reduce emissions in their own lives, said David Rechmuff, a senior vehicles engineer at UCS. As the electric vehicle market has emerged over the last five years, electric vehicles are better than a 50-mile-per-gallon gasoline car for 70% of Americans, up from 50%. It's been remarkable to see the improvements, end quote. Now, some people ask about the life cycle um, from manufacturing to disposable to driving. Electric vehicles actually produce half the emissions of a comparable gasoline vehicle. Of course, the largest share of emissions comes from driving, which is where electric vehicles have a big and growing advantage. The new analysis is based on updated numbers on power generations from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which show reduced greenhouse gas emissions from power generations in most of the country over the past five years. Quote, the future of a driving is electric. We need to keep working to make sure these cars are accessible to more drivers, that we have the infrastructure to charge them, and that we continue to replace old, dirty sources of power with new renewable energy technology, end quote. Now, the Union Concerned Scientist has an interactive tool that drivers can use. Oh, I just lost my screen. One second. Oh, yeah. but the, Yeah, an interactive online tool that lets you learn how much cleaner different models of electric vehicles are in your uh, area. And so, yeah, it's on the Union of Concerned Scientists site. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at info at yourcommunityspirit.org, and you'll get the links to that and other stories. That's part of what's interesting and exciting about electric vehicles is that, you know, they get cleaner and cleaner based on the energy source that you're using for them. So uh, even if you don't have solar installed on your home, if you're charging it directly off of grid power, as the grid gets cleaner, your car is getting cleaner right along with it. Whereas and then it, motorheads like them because they've got a lot of power. I mean, you get the same RPM, you get the same torque at one RPM as you do at max RPM. So yeah, it's just like just you know, sit you back in the seat, feel the power. Yeah, and as I actually as a. Um, as a non-motorhead, one thing I like about them is the more simplicity to them. You know, people don't realize this if they don't work on cars or have knowledge of cars, but the internal combustion engine is a complex device, you know. It's got a lot of moving parts, and 
Uh, electric vehicles have far fewer. Now, as they've gotten more sophisticated, they've got a few more than they used to, but they still are uh, a lot simpler, not as many things that can break down as you have in an internal combustion engine. Very true. I mean, if you use the electric motor to slow you down, your brakes actually last a lot longer, too. So, Yeah. Yep. So there's very few things to wear out on an electric car. Well, besides the batteries. So. On holidays, there's a few really tasty holidays. We've got National Strawberry Rhubarb Pie Day, Iced Tea Day, and National Corn on the Cob Day. Hmm. Yep, definitely some summertime holidays there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is June. It's neck up on me, but it's here. Yeah. Let's see. And Sewing Machine Day on Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday is Monkey Around Day, so day to be playful, I take it. Uh, Thursday is two different kinds of power. One is Smile Power Day, and the other one is Global Wind Day, so a day for wind power. Also a day for a lot of wind. And again, it is June, which is National Fresh Fruit and Vegetables Month. Yeah, uh, National Adopt-A-Cat Month. There are a lot of cats out there looking for homes, so it's National... And National Gardening Month. Yeah. It's also Gay Pride Month as well. It's, let's see, National Accordion Awareness Month. That's an interesting one. All right, so let's get into some of these happenings. Now, actually, I want to, uh, if my phone will cooperate here, I want to jump ahead to this one that didn't make it on the list so I don't forget it. It's the uh, industrial garage sale for the Women's Center. Uh, it's a fundraiser for the Women's Center. It's coming up on, here we go, Saturday at 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. over at 550 North University, just east of Southern Recycling. Every penny from this event goes to the Women's Center. They've got, it's a bunch of industrial stuff. They've got PVC plumbing parts, hand tools, power tools. If you go to the uh, Little River Research and Design uh, site or to the Women's Center site, you can find uh, the full list. Uh, got 90s analog music gear. <laughs> Lots of things that they're selling, and it's all for the cause of raising funds for the Women's Center. Tonight is the Raspberry Full Moon Paddle on the Cache River with White Crane Canoe Rentals and Guide Service. Tonight at 9 p.m., join for a, another full moon adventure. Hear the call of green tree frogs, chorus frogs, green frogs, and more on this full moon Friday evening paddle. The raspberries and blackberries will be ripe with flavor and taste on this moon. Price includes paddle, paddle instruction, nature guide, and a sampling of Native American fry bread and berry syrup. For more information, whitecranecanoes.com or 618-201-4090. And again, that's tonight at 9 p.m. And I, that just sounds phenomenal. Yeah. I really want to go on that again. Yeah, I'd really like to go on that too. I've, I'm not always mindful of this, but whenever I get a chance, I keep an eye out for the moon. And lately, the past couple of nights, it's just been such a bright, brilliant moon. And... 
So right in time for the full moon, they're doing this raspberry full moon paddle, the Cash River. At white, white Crane Canoes. Also coming up this weekend, we have Fresh Fitness. This is coming up on Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. over at Turley Park. The City of Carbondale is teaming up with the Carbondale Park District to host a series of fitness classes every Saturday morning during the Carbondale Farmer's Market in June and July. The classes will be held from 10 to, oh, this says 10 to 11 a.m. at the Lennis Turley Park. Experience is not required. Please wear comfortable clothes and bring a water bottle, towel, and or yoga mat. A cash donation of $5 is suggested. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact the Carbonell Public Relations Officer Amy Fox at 618-559-1939. And I kind of like the timing of that because it's, well, it's a Saturday morning when people often have availability anyway, and it's, you get your fresh food at the farmer's market and you get your uh, fresh fitness over at this event. Pretty exciting way to spend your Saturday mornings. New Humanist Forum Community Volunteering Opportunities at Sunday at 12.15 at the Carbondale Unitarian Fellowship. The next New Humanist Forum Community Volunteering Opportunities will take place on Sunday at the Carbondale Unitarian Fellowship in Carbondale. Kara Dunkel is pleased to announce the rolling out of JustServe.org, a free volunteer matching website that is available to the public with no strings attached. Organizations in need of volunteers will learn how to connect to the website, and those wanting volunteer experiences will find many projects to choose from to make a difference in their community today. The New Humanist Forum is a member-led group devoted to exploring together all the many facets of what it means to be truly human. To attend or participate does not mean need to be a fellowship member. The community is invited to attend this free event or go to justserve.org to sign up to be a volunteer or sign up your organization to accept volunteers. It sounds good. A volunteer matching website. Yeah. That sounds like a really exciting opportunity. Also coming up, the Shawnee Group Zero Club Picnic. It's coming up on Sunday, 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. at Evergreen Park's Giant Sycamore Shelter. And that's the main shelter that's visible from Pleasant Hill Road over at Evergreen Terrace, or Evergreen Park, excuse me. The Shawnee Group will be providing locally sourced Lick Creek burgers and bratwurst and all-beef kosher hot dogs and veggie burgers and hot dogs. They'll have music provided by Meridian 90 as well as games and activities. If you need more information, you can contact them at the Shawnee Group Sierra Club Facebook page or 618-549-4673. Permaculture Design and Biodynamic Canting Field Day, Monday at 5.30 p.m., at Colinda, Colinia Linda Farm and B&B. Come learn about permaculture at the monthly Food Works Field Day on Monday, June 12th. Permaculture design doesn't happen overnight. It requires careful observation and planning in order to develop a system that fits the individual property and owners. 
permaculture expert Wayne Wiseman will join the tour to provide tips and insights on how to incorporate permaculture design into your homestead or farm. To learn more about field days and register, go to fwsoil.org. Yes, all right, and we have coming up here, uh, you may want to talk about this one a bit, Looking to the Future, Growing New Energy Jobs. It's coming up on Tuesday and Wednesday, June 13 and 14th, from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., with one session over at John A. Logan College and another at Southeastern Illinois College. Last year, the Future Energy Jobs Act was passed with bipartisan support and signed into law by Governor Honor. This is one of the most comprehensive energy bills in the country, now an additional $200 million per year will be available to build new solar and wind facilities in Illinois, creating more good-paying jobs, preparing a workforce with competitive skills, and expanding the state's legacy as a top energy producer. So this event offers an opportunity to learn how to leverage available resources in order to bring new energy jobs to central and southern Illinois. This forum will be offered at two locations and is open to mayors, county board members, economic development directors, and community leaders in Downstate Illinois. The meetings will be held in, on two dates and two locations to maximize participation. Information presented at each will be identical. <laughs> 